back. We are going into Revelation chapter 13 and look forward to that. Let's pray. Lord, uh, seek you and love you, need you, and uh, pray that uh, your Holy Spirit will be with us in the name of Jesus Christ and uh, fill us with your wisdom and your knowledge. Lots of information, lots of places to stumble over and uh, trip, and uh, especially me, but we pray that your Spirit will guide us and move us to what is right and away from what is wrong. Help us to um, consider you and your ways uh, in all things, Lord but especially in the study of Scripture, and help us to have application to the import of the book of Revelation to our lives so that we can uh, walk from here, as meaty as this subject is, more sustained in our uh, Christian lives. Help us to be better Christians. Help us to uh, love our neighbors better, but more importantly than ever, other than ever, to love our enemies. So we seek your strength and support. We love you and dedicate this short time together as we sing your words set to music. In Jesus' name, amen. And whoever falls on this
Okay, chapter 13, uh, and as typical, well, I think with Revelation, we're going to read through it, get it under our belt, and, uh, and, then, we will, uh, and then we'll go verse by verse. It's kind of like a snowball that's rolled down the hill. We have a lot of surface area to cover with 13 and uh, some unique language. Verse 1, John says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea... And saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And that will be our text. I think we'll get to that today. And we're going to continue on just to write, read the rest of it. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the, in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon, and he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell thereon to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by means of those miracles which, had power, which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast that had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. 
Let him that has understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred three score and six. So there's been great movies written about this. There have been just unbelievable postulations about what it's going to look like in our future. And quite frankly, as I read some of those later verses, uh, not with the 666, uh, 660 and 6, but with some of the other stuff, it's tough to see how we're going to uh, come about uh, some sense with that from the preterist view. But, uh, and it's really easy and exciting to talk about it from a futurist view to believe that this is coming because uh, it gets us excited to see who's coming up and rising up in the world and could be the beast and the Antichrist and all those things. But let's go back to where John says at verse 1, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. So we're introduced now to a beast which John says is coming up out of the sea, and it has the, 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 the ten horns, etc. In chapter 12, we read about a red dragon that was cast down to earth, and we know from verse 9 of chapter 12 that this being was Satan. Okay, And we also know he is described as having seven heads and ten horns. Therefore, we know that with the sea representing the Gentile nations. And that's what we have always said as we've studied Revelation back to chapter 3, 4, 5 and moved on. The sea in Revelation are Gentile nations and the land of Revelation is Israel. So those are the symbols. So, when, so we know that if the sea is representing Gentile nations that either Satan or a creature inhabited by Satan was going to rise up out of the Gentile nation and head for the land of Israel. Uh, and that's the way that I would interpret it. And I'm not alone in that. I learned this from others. Uh, this reference here is very likely a way of telling the first century readers at this time. Remember the, the, the believers in the seven churches that uh, it's a way to tell them that this beast is a prominent Gentile figure and looking to Daniel 7.3, it's similar when Daniel talked about four great beasts coming up out of the sea. We have a similarity there. So uh, we will be told more about this beast here in chapter 13 and then also in chapter 17. It includes details about its ten horns and its seven heads. And we're going to use some of that as we're going to jump ahead and grab from it so that we can understand. But it's important to realize something about this beast that trips people up when they study Revelation. And that is, it has two natures. Uh, or it's described, I should say, in two ways. And so it makes us think it's one thing, or it's the other thing, or, and it's hard, and it confuses us. And what I mean by this is the beast is described as an individual in some places, and it is described as being, having seven heads, or seven individuals in, in, in places. Uh, with Israel being the land and the Gentile nations being the sea and with the singular plural beast, singular plural, the one beast with seven heads coming up out of the sea, to me, it seems like it's fairly easy, especially in context of all the other, all the other information that we have discussed about this. And that is the singular beast is Rome. 
And that is what we have consistently seen thus far. Maybe this will change as we get into later chapters. But the singular beast is Rome, and it is coming in on land of Israel to attack and destroy Jerusalem and all the surrounding areas as it did. And that its seven heads represent its seven Kaisers, or the way we say it in America, the seven Caesars. Now, in some places, Revelation 13.1, Revelation 17.3, and verses 9 and 10, the beast has seven heads where the seven kings are collectively considered. So here the beast then is generically portrayed as the kingdom with the seven kings that arise in chronological succession. Um, and Revelation 7, uh, 17, chapter, uh, verses 10 through 11 help illustrate this. So, but then again, in the very same context, the beast is spoken of as an individual in Revelation 13, 18, in our, the verses we just read. And more confusingly, as but one head among seven. That makes it, those lines make it tough for us, especially if we're really uh, set on literal understanding of Revelation which can be tough. So bottom line, the beast in Revelation is sometimes spoken of as an individual, a specific sense, and sometimes as a kingdom in the generic sense. And it's not surprising that the beast is interchangeably an an individual and a kingdom uh, if ancient Rome is the thing that's in view here. Okay, uh, a noted preterist, his name's Ken Gentry, many of you know who he is, says that even the Roman poet Ovid, uh, that's, uh, he once wrote regarding the Emperor Augustus, he said, the state is, is Kaiser, the state is Caesar, likens one to the other. So we have both the individual and we have the state, which is uh, a plural. So in order to really understand that the seven heads of the beast are what they are, we are required to go to chapter 17, verses 9 through 10. So if you're following along, jump to that. John, in this place, explains them. And here he says, And here is the mind, verse 9 of Revelation 17, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains, on which the woman sits. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen. Remember this. One is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. So we have right there in Revelation chapter 17, John tells us this is who They are. These are the seven kings. Five are fallen at the time of that writing. Five of those kings down, meaning they're dead. And then he says, and one is, one is presently on the throne at the time of this writing to the seven churches. And then he says, and the other is not yet come, not on the throne yet. But when he comes, he will continue a short space of time. Won't be on the throne for very long. And the seven heads are seven mountains on which the, Roman, uh, the woman is seated. And then it said there's also seven kings. So the description of those seven kings lines up really well, really well with the historical data. Because of this fact, this helps us date Revelation as being written prior to 70 AD, which very few, not very few, but 
a lot of Christians just don't believe that. They think it was written in 95 and it's talking about our future. Because if it was written after the destruction of Rome, it has nothing to do with the uh, 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 destruction of Israel. It has nothing, Jerusalem, it has nothing to do with that. It has to be futuristic or at least historical in its presentation. And so we have to see what's the dating of it. And as we did way back, there's seven internal signs in the book of Revelation that tell us. We don't even have to look externally. There's seven internal signs that tell us Revelation was dated prior to 70 AD. And it speaks to the destruction of Jerusalem all through it. And that's why this message is to the seven churches then that John would give them and they would read it and they would see what's going on. It has no basis for it to be written to the seven churches and for us to be reading it today and think it's still happening out in the future. Okay, but up on the board, we have the, what was described in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. And so let's just go through it really quickly. Remember, John says, we have five who were. So at the time of this writing, we know that these are the five who were. And this is from historical data of who the uh, Kaisers were of Rome. Then he says there's one who is, and that would be Nero. And so we know if this is the case, if this holds water, that somehow between October of 54 AD and June of 68 AD, Revelation was written. Because that is the time when the one who is was on the throne over that kingdom. And then he says, and the other is not yet come. That's Galba. That's the seventh. But he says, uh, he, uh, but when he comes, he must continue a short space. And Galba uh, only reigned for six months. So we have some internal evidence right there that the seven kings, uh, the seven kaisers, seven emperors, were those first seven Kaisers of, uh, the Rom of Roman history. <coughs> okay? Just to let you know, uh, Julius Caesar was known as the perpetual dictator, and uh, Augustus was uh, reigning during the time of Jesus' birth. As you can see by those dates, you can kind of fit what happens in the New Testament. And then Tiberius was at the time of Jesus' ascension, and then Caligula, he was, uh, he was murdered, and he was during 37 A.D. to 41 A.D., so that's during the Apostolic Church. And then Claudius was assassinated, 41 A.D., 54, still Apostolic Church. And then the time, uh, the one who now is, or who is Nero, uh, he committed suicide, and then Galba was murdered thereafter. And we'll talk about the other three later on as it will touch on, on that. So, as a means to dispute this, futurists may say that some historians, this is a futurist defense against this, historians don't consider Julius Caesar one of the seven. So, this is the futurist way of, uh, and so they would say this is number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and that changes us uh, in our dating a little bit. But that's, that's how they say it. And, and, but Josephus, Flavius Josephus, uh, he did consider uh, Julius Caesar in his book of antiquities uh, one of the Kaisers, the first, the eternally reigning Kaiser, so to speak. 
and numerous historians agree as uh, Josephus contends. So that kind of puts to death the futurist view that the first uh, Julius Caesar was not seen as a true uh, uh, Kaiser. I don't know what, where that comes from. Uh, Dio Cassius and Suetonius uh, in their books all said, even though he is the perpetual dictator, what he was called, he was appointed in 42 BC. Um, his inclusion would be strange to not include him as the first one of the seven. And by including Julius Caesar as the first one, that gives us that really hard to beat chronology of kings that helps us set the dating of Revelation. Um, so, whatever that's worth. Uh, according again to the list above, Nero was king of whom John said, uh, now is reigning now and Galba is the one who is not yet to come. So as we've already discussed, Galba reigning only six months, uh, the chart on the board indicates that there were more Roman emperors than were referenced by John. Uh, why does John only mention seven when on the board we have these ten? Okay. One reason might be the number seven is emblematic of the whole thing, kind of like the number 1,000 is emblematic of all years. God is not the, cal uh, the God of a, a thousand cattle on a thousand hills. And we know that that just means a thousand means everything. It doesn't mean that thousand year period of time, a thousand cattle on a thousand hills. God is also the God of a thousand and one cattle on a thousand and one hills. It's just the way the Hebrews would explain all time, right? And so uh, the thousand is not a literal uh, meaning here. Uh, and so uh, seven is not a literal meaning here either, the way we might justify that there were more uh, Caesars listed. We also perhaps see seven cover the ground that John is talking about. And so he just calls the first seven. He doesn't need to talk about the ones who come thereafter because they're at, these are the guys who destroy uh, Jerusalem, Vespasian. And so after that, there's no need. Why he doesn't include these three, I think it's because the persecution was coming out of this guy. And he stops, he stops with saying, and there's one more to come, but he's not going to reign for very long. This is the guy I really want to talk about, this, this being who is so horrible. And we're going to read a little bit about him in a minute. Um, the seven mountains that it says, if you're wondering, you cannot deny. I'm terrible on geography. I don't travel at all. I haven't traveled really, except for a few jobs back, way back in the day. But uh, this is definitely speaking of Rome, the seven mountains. Um, in fact, uh, archaeologists find coins where uh, Roma, as a woman, is seated on seven hills. So uh, it's known for that. Uh, we have to remember, or learn in my case, that Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, is one city in history that's famous for seven hills or mountains. I didn't know that, but learned that as I've studied this. In fact, first century Rome used to celebrate a feast called Septi Septimontium, and it means the seven-hilled, the celebration of the seven-hilled city. So right there in scripture again, when John sees the seven mountains, we have that being Rome historically, even on the coins, that's what it's known as. And then, has anybody been to Rome in this group? <laughs> Do any of you know about seven, seven mountains? Does that, does that ring a bell with any of you? It does? Some, so those who have traveled understand this. It's right there in Revelation. So 
we're going to see what futurists do is say Rome is going to be reestablished. It's going to come back into power, and there we can then assign a futurist interpretation of Revelations to that place. We're going to talk about that in a second. So bringing this home to roost, it's really pretty clear. Israel was being obliterated by Rome, and uh, this was what is being described in Revelation. So verse 1 again, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw the beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his ten horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Turn to Revelation 17, verses 12 and 13, and we read, And the ten horns which thou sawest, ready, are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. And so who are these ten of one mind and who hand over their power and authority to the beast? Many people have said, well, it's these 10. Because of the number 10, there's 10, etc., etc. But we have a problem with that because here in Revelation, John says these have not yet received royal power. So it can't be them because we know when John was writing, these had received royal power. So it can't be these 10 if that's your inclination, just because there's 10 rulers there to think that's what it means. That was mine initially, and I was proven wrong by studying that further. Another more likely view is that these ten kings were the rulers in ten empirical provinces of Rome who were empowered by Nero at the time to assist him in carrying out his campaign against Israel and subsequently Jerusalem. Um, The global glossary on the Greco-Roman world, I'm going to quote, it says that there were 10 senatorial provinces in ancient Rome. So we have 10 senatorial provinces in ancient Rome, and this is probably what it's referring to as those uh, who are been given power by Nero. Uh, Wikipedia, sorry, uh, it lists these 10 senatorial provinces as they existed in 14 AD as uh, uh, Achaia, Africa, Asia, Creta et Cyrene, Cyprus, Gallia, Narbonesis, Hispania, Beteca, Macedonia, Pontus, Elbithnia, and Sicilia. Those are the ten provinces of Rome, 14 AD. So the idea is Nero, who's the Kaiser, Caesar, he has ten provinces, and those guys over those provinces are in collusion with him, to wipe out the saints, wipe out uh, uh, Israel. One biblical mention of a Roman province, we remember in our study in Milk of, of Acts, those of you who join us with that, Acts 18, it talks about Gallio being the proconsul of Achaia. So there we have evidence that, that this one province did have a, a, pers- a proconsul who stood over it as kind of a ruler. In our study, we uh, saw that that was the case. So, as a side note, I personally struggle to get or fully understand these things. Um, And so, I I study the maps that are given, and there's really no way for the futurist supposition to occur if the beast will be revived 
in a new revived Roman Empire. That's, the, that's what the futurists suggest, okay? And it can't be correspond because the European Union, as it stands today, no way reflects the ancient Roman Empire. So in order for that to happen, we're talking about, you know how tough it is for people to give an inch, you know, like on your property line? We're talking about the entire world over there reconfiguring itself again so that it can fit the parameters of the Roman Empire. And in our modern day, that's just not going to happen. In other words, the ancient Roman Empire was vast and spread from Britain to the north, uh, to Egypt in the south, from Spain and North Africa in the west, to the borders of uh, Parthia, Iran today in the east. <laughs> we aren't going to reestablish that again, unless you, know, you want to be of a magical thinker who the Antichrist is going to somehow convince everybody to reestablish things that way. If that's the case and you're a futurist, and let's say, let's just give it some ground, let's say it's true, it's going to happen. We can tell that's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen in the next 5, 10, 20 years. Unless, I mean, it's way out there for this reconfiguration to take place. Uh, so, in the first century, when the New Testament was written, the border of the Roman Empire in Europe stopped at the Rhine and Danube rivers. Uh, it never included any significant portion of Germany or Eastern Europe or the center of the Roman Empire was never Gaul, which is France today, right? Uh, the heart of the Roman Empire in the first century was Rome itself, and then Alexandria in Egypt, and then all the Greek cities we've read in Acts, and then the great cities of Antioch, uh, Damascus, and Jerusalem were all inland from the Mediterranean coast. These places were all the centers. So let's go to verse 2. And the beast which I saw coming out of the Gentile nation, I'm going to add, out of the water, was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as feet of a bar, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. So where is all this coming from, this imagery that John is saying that he saw? Have we seen it somewhere else in Scripture? Well, go to Daniel chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 8. And right there it says, and I'm going to read it. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, verse 2, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven strove upon the great sea. Now we're back to a sea imagery. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And another beast, and behold, another beast, a second, like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it, and they... And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another, like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl, and beasts had four heads, and dominion was given to it. So we have similar themes popping out. 
After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and exceedingly strong, and it had great iron teeth, and it devoured and break in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I, verse 8, last verse. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Just like uh, John said there, the mouth was speaking great and blasphemous things in chapter 17. Okay. No matter the eschatology, Bible scholars uh, seem to be partially, if not fully in agreement, the ones I checked with, that Daniel's visions, the beasts represented the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and the Roman empires. That's the interpretation. Full preterist, historicist, uh, idealist, partial preterist, futurist, whatever it is, they all tend to agree with that. It's interesting, though, that when Paul was released from prison, he was put in prison, and he was released under the hand of Nero. Nero was in power at that time. He says in 2 Timothy 4.17, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And I'm not sure that that's uh, not, not just, I'm not sure that's just a Hebraism he threw out there. Or something that you would say, I was released from the clutches of Satan, you know. I think he was referring to the one in charge. And just like John says, we are to look for Antichrist. I tell you, there are Antichrists all around us right now. That's First John. And so I think that when Paul said that, he was making reference to the vision that Daniel had. Rome appears to have been brought into the picture as a chief agent of just judgment by God. Rome was brought into the picture as a chief agent of justice, judgment upon uh, Israel. Specifically, yes, the outer lying areas, scorched earth, food gone, but man, Jerusalem was the final pull down. That's where their center was. It was the persecuting power that was in the hand of the old serpent cast to earth. Remember, we talked about it last week, that at the ascension of Christ, Christ's victory, that Satan and his angels were cast to earth. That's what we suggested. And so I would suggest that this is what's happening when he's down. Now Rome is empowered with that power and authority, and they come in and they do their job. Verses 3 and 4. And I saw one of the heads, as it were, wounded to death. And uh, I smiled because as a kid, I remember people used to show me pictures of like some antichrist guy with a wound in his eye. I don't know if you've ever seen those. Maybe I was being shown strange things by somebody. But like he was wounded to death, and then the next picture, he comes back to life. That, that's what the pictures were drawn. I saw one of the heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And of course, we know the futurist views of that, but if you change that a little bit, just a little bit of artistic license here or scriptural license, if you say, who is like unto Rome? Who can make Rome with her? That, that, that might be the way that we are reading this. At verse 3, John says that one of the beast's seven heads has a mortal wound in it. 
And then the next line, it is healed, and he says, and the world wondered, or had wonder, is probably the better Greek. Note first that the world here is not cosmos, when it says, and the world wondered. If it said that, we have reason to believe that it's coming in the future, so the whole world will wonder about this. But it's gehe, which does not mean the whole world. It just means that local geographical area, probably Israel. All of Israel, all the Roman Empire maybe, wondered, how, how will this wounded head of this beast ever revive? Gehei helps us understand, not cosmos. That brings some clarity. Uh, I have often, as I said, had this beast mentioned to me or described to me as being an individual that's going to get shot in the head by an assassin and will have the hole in his head and then the next day will be revived and people will be like, oh, wow, you know. Uh, but the best theories regarding this mortally wounded head refer, and I th historically in my, in my estimation, to the Roman Empire, people thinking it was dead. It had died. And that it was, uh, that was after the stunning deaths of uh, Julius Caesar and after the stunning death of Nero. When, when Nero died, people thought, that's it. You know, we are in such trouble, we'll never revive. Even if Nero himself was mortally, mortally wounded in the head, it's not he who personally survives the wound. If the beast coming out of the sea is the seven-headed, seven mountains, seven Kaisers coming up to go and get Israel, that is not what we're talking about. We are talking about uh, Rome itself, the Roman Empire. Historians consider it astonishing that the empire stabilized and survived this period that otherwise was spelling complete ruin for it. And all the histori secular historians talk about how this was amazing that it could come back to life after Nero committed suicide. So therefore, the recovery of the Roman Empire under Vespasian, under these guys, still 69 AD, this was the recovery that the whole Gehei would say, how's this possible? Remember, while in Jerusalem, the Jewish zealots didn't think anything could overtake them, and they thought for a while they were winning the war against Rome. And so then Nero kills himself, and they have, and during all this time, some periods of peace, they're getting up and thinking, we've done it, and now suddenly they're saying, uh-oh, it's come back. So the beast of the empire had survived this mortal wounding in its head, which was Nero. We might be surprised that a number of futurist writers agree with this interpretation. Um, that uh, one guy, his name is, uh, you might know him, Valward is his last name. He believes, quote, the wounding of one of the heads was a reference to the fact that the Roman Empire seemingly died, but will in the future be revived. See, they see it as the Roman Empire is dead now, but in the future it's going to be not only revived, but its geographical boundaries are going to be recentered on the way it was uh, during biblical times. Uh, but in my estimation, what happened was one of the heads, Nero, died, and historians conclude that was something they didn't think could be overcome, and it was. It's a surprise that the Jews, the whole earth, so to speak, or is it a surprise, do you think, that the Jews or the whole the people of all that land would worship the beast. That's what it says here. 
Is there any indication in Scripture that the Jews as a nation had a willingness to put Rome ahead of themselves? And we have one that I can think of, and it was when Jesus, you remember this, was before the mob by Pilate, and uh, he says, who do you want, you know, and uh, do you want your king? And they said, we have no king but Kaiser. That's what they said. They didn't say we have no king but king but God. They didn't say we have no king but our high priest. Uh, they said we have no king but the Kaiser of Rome. And so it's quite possible they are the ones John is referring to as worshiping the Roman Empire and saying who can beat, you know, it or her. Listen to what Edersheim, he's a, a Jewish turned Christian scholar, says about the Roman Empire. Quote, with this cry, we have no king but Kaiser. Listen to what he says. And he was a Jew. With this cry, Judaism was, in the name of its representatives, guilty of denial of God, of blasphemy, of apostasy. It was here that it committed suicide. That's what uh, Edersheim says of his nation when they said, we have no king but Kaiser. So we also note in the scriptural example that the rulers of Rome were not only called emperors, but they were also called kings. And that helps us bring further light to the text when we consider that little fact that in Revelation 17, 10, uh, the seven kings uh, could be understood as the seven Roman emperors. Another thing to help us understand that. So here in Revelation 13, 4, we see not only the Jews' adoration of Rome's incomparable power and stamina when they say things like, who's like this beast? But we also sense their sense of being powerless to even oppose Rome in any way. Who can fight against it? Who can fight against it, right? So maintaining that this beast was Rome, let's now read verses 5, 6, and 7. So there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Written so many different ways, but it's three and a half years. Forty and two months, time, times, and time and a half. Forty-two months, that's what it is. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So to reiterate, just to get it in our heads, uh, there was given to the beast who John told us had a mouth like a lion, haughty and blasphemous words, Power was given unto him to continue 40 and two months, three and a half years. He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, his name, his tabernacle, and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given him to make war with the saints to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds, tongues, and nations. Prior to Nero's uh, persecution, persecution on the Christians. Now this is so, this is up here in these days, 54 A.D., prior to this date, all the way up in here, up till uh, right in here and here, Christians were not persecuted by Rome. Uh, Christians were persecuted by the Jews. They were the ones who drove them from Jerusalem, 
diaspora of the Christians out to the world at the day of Pentecost, or right after the day of Pentecost, so that the gospel would go out to all those places. Christianity was considered a sect of Jerusalem, of Judaism, uh, by the Romans. It was just another sect. And um, so, as evidenced by the fact that Paul appealed to Nero on his case, and, but in AD 62 had been acquitted and released. Some scholars suggest that Rome didn't even make a clear distinction in their minds between what was Christian and what was Jewish. It was just the same thing to them. And this is supported by the testimonies of early historians when they wrote about Nero's campaign against Christians through persecution. Listen, Eusebius, this is a long time later, 260 to 340 AD, but Eusebius, church historian, gathered the stuff up, better historian probably than anybody we have, perhaps, unless more information's come to us. But he pointed out that Nero was, quote, the first of the emperors who showed himself an enemy of the religion, talking about Christianity. So first thing we start to point out, John says, this one now is Nero. That's what I underlined him here. This guy is the one who first started persecuting Christians. Lactantius, he agrees by saying of Nero, he it was who first persecuted the saints of God. Severus said that he was, quote, the basis of all men. We are talking about one of the most perfect descriptions of the beast, Antichrist, dude, you've ever seen, ever, in this guy Nero, okay? He was, quote, the basis of all men and even of wild beasts, showing himself in every way most abominable and cruel. He first attempted to abolish the name of Christian. So when Christians talk about the time coming when we are going to be under persecution and all that stuff, and futurists say, or dispensationalists say, oh, I don't believe that. We're going to be taken up and raptured during that time. That's not going to happen to us. And then there's amillennialist and postmillennialist views that Christians will go through it. This is what it was. The Christians went through it. They went through it, all right, with Nero doing all sorts of, look at Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you haven't read that book, read that sucker. It's amazing what they did to Christians under Nero's control. Uh, Sulpicius devoted two chapters to Nero's reign of terror. Okay? Now, in his sacred history, uh, Domitian, who often gets credit for being the worst against Christians, got two sentences. So, just to put it in historical context, people say Domitian was the guy who really persecuted the Christians. Look to the writings of, Nero, of, of what uh, Sulpicius says about Nero, because he, he writes two full chapters of what that guy does to believers. In 1854, uh, church historian John Lawrence von Mosheim's, von Mosheim added these thoughts. Ready? Quote, Foremost in the rank of those emperors that I've written on the board, on whom the church looks back with horror, as her persecutor stands Nero. Okay. A prince whose conduct toward the Christians admits of no palliation. It means no minimizing. You cannot minimize in any way what he did to Christians. But was to the last degree unprincipled and inhuman. The dreadful persecution which took Dias by order of this tyrant commenced at Rome about the middle of November in the year of the Lord, 64. So mid-64, he says it commenced. 
this dreadful state of persecution ceased with the death of Nero, which was June of 68. Mid-64 to June of 68. Does that work? I didn't even figure it out. Does that three and a half years? Does it work? Someone? Mathematics? Does it? Is that three and a half? Sarah said yes and doesn't even know. <laughs> Why not? He goes on and says, The empire, it is well known, was not delivered from the tyranny of this monster until AD 68 when he put an end to his own life. Okay? If you take note of these dates, I have this in my notes so it does work. It fits the allotted time. That's what's amazing. Tacitus, Roman historian who lived from 56 AD to 117 AD, wrote in detail of Nero's move to persecute the saints soon after the fire that raged through Rome and destroyed 10 out of 14 city divisions. Remember, uh, it says Nero fiddled by uh, Rome burned, which is not true. But he wrote this, Tacitus wrote this, quote, But by no human contrivance, whether lavish contributions of money or of offerings to appease the gods, could Nero rid himself of the ugly rumor that the fire was due to his orders. So to dispel the report... He substituted as the guilty persons and inflicted unheard of punishments on those who, detested for their abominable crimes, were vulgarly called Christians. Wrapped in the hides of wild beasts, they were torn to pieces by dogs, fastened to crosses to be set on fire, and when the darkness fell that they might be burned to illuminate the night. We talked about earlier on, many months ago, how Nero wrapped Christians in his garden in flammable materials and stuck them up on crosses in his garden and lit them on fire so that the, the garden would be illuminated by night. This is what we're talking about. This is not a futuristic deal. John is telling the seven churches, any reader of Revelation, this is what is coming, and the one who now is is on the throne. At the end of this chapter... We're going to get an identifier by John of who the one who now is in secret code language. He's going to say, listen, you want to know who he is? I'm going to give you a figure. And when you compute this figure, you're going to know who I've been talking about the whole darn time. I can't write his name in this because if I do and you're found with these, reading these, you're go he didn't say all this, but this is what's inferred, you are going to be killed. So I'm going to give you a figure to to uh, figure out his name, and it's called Ametria. And what that, I think that's the word, and what that is is they just had num numbers associated with the letters of a person's name, and they said if you take those letters of the person's name or title and you figure them and add them up, they're going to come to a certain number. Here is the number to look for to see who this one is I'm talking about. And he gives it to us at the end of chapter 13. The single most remarkable detail about Romans' campaign of persecution is that it lasted just over 42 months, which is what John said. Revelation 13, 5, 8 records as the length of that time which we be given to the beast to war against and conquer the saints. Note, he did kill saints at this time. So not all of them escaped from this. God allowed some to be put to death. They were tried and for their witness. 
I am so amazed by the strength of these, of these uh, martyrs. Either here, the Anabaptists, and even a martyr today in North Korea, or uh, wherever they're persecuting them, Saudi Arabia, wherever they're killing them. I am so impressed by martyrs of the Christian faith who just say, it's Jesus. We're going to put you to death. Go ahead. It's Jesus. I mean, it's hard to even convey the power and strength in Christ that they have to be able to say that and lose their life in such horrific ways. Read uh, Trail of Blood, the Anabaptist story, and read about the martyrs then. Read about different people who were put to death, who fought against certain things. Read about some of the persecutions, maybe not all death, but the persecutions many received under the hand of the Protestant Reformation. Read about those who suffered because Calvin didn't like what they believed. And that persecution of people who have heartfelt belief, uh, it just it warms my heart, no pun intended. So, uh, persecution ended when Nero died, June 9th, 68 AD. In this context, Revelation 13.10 was a comfort to the saints. Because in Revelation 13.10, John says, it's going to last for uh, three and a half years. You get through that, you're going you're gonna to make it. And then he adds there, by the way, he who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. But John adds that little insight to those saints to understand. He, here is the patience and faith of the saints. Here it is, he says, the patience and faith of you guys. Three and a half years, he who lived by the sword will die by the sword. And Nero ended his life by thrusting a sword through his own throat. Uh, 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 with the help of his personal secretary, when he realized that his popularity had gone down and there was a coup coming out to get him. He who lived by the sword died by the sword, his own sword. He killed himself. Secular history supports it. So back in chapter 12, we learned how the dragon Satan was allowed by God to make war on the saints and to conquer them. We also saw in chapter 12 how the dragon Satan became enraged with the woman. Remember that woman being Jerusalem who bore the Christ child and then gave birth to those who followed after the Christ child and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, chapter 12, verse 17 said. This is clearly a reference to persecution of the church for her offspring are identified as those who keep the, uh, the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. So at this point, the Jewish believers have escaped from Jerusalem, Revelation 12, verses 13 through 16. But believers in general throughout the Roman Empire are targeted for persecution in Rome. Many are martyred. Many are being uh, brutalized. The Christians, again, at Jerusalem have escaped to Pella, uh, according to Josephus. John records that authority is given to the beast, not just over Israel, but over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Uh, and in this, Rome becomes the devil's agent, so to speak. History tells us of the persecutions of Rome. Paul was beheaded. Uh, Peter was crucified upside down. Uh, I'm reading this, and I wrote it, but I have to tell you that some of this is tradition. It's not necessarily verifiable. Fox's Book of Martyrs suggests it, but it's not verifiable. Uh, the Christians were thrown to lions. They were exposed to cold. They were drowned in rivers. They were thrown in cauldrons of boiling oil. Um, they were slathered with pitch and set on fire. And uh, every conceivable torture that you can imagine that can be heaped upon somebody of that age with their imagination was heaped upon them. 
With regard to the 42-month limit for the beast's intense persecution of the church, this was important to the first century reader because they knew that they were for, uh, facing it, but there, it would endure for a period of time. Numerous church fathers and leaders during the first centuries identified Nero as the beast of the book of Revelation. If you're able to do that, you can almost write uh, the, the obituary for futurism. Because if that's who it was, unless you're a historicist who believes that we go in cycles and the book of Revelation repeats itself and it keeps doing it, it did it with Hitler and it did it with whoever and it's going to do it again, that's what a historicist view would say. But if you are not a historicist and you think that it was taken care of, then this is what we're talking about. Uh, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Augustine, uh, Jerome, all had points of saying uh, uh, Nero was the guy. I'm going to read one here from Jerome. It's 347 to 420 AD. He says, as for the Antichrist, there is no question but what he is going to fight against the Holy Covenant and that when he first makes war against the king of Egypt, he shall straightway be frightened off by the assistance of the Romans. But these events were typically prefigured under Antiochus Epiphanes, so that this abominable king who persecuted God's people foreshadows the Antichrist, who is to persecute the people of Christ. And so there are many of our viewpoint who think that Nero was the Antichrist because of his outstanding savagery and depravity, end quote, uh, from um, uh, Jerome. Others point to historical details from the reign of Nero to show how he fit the biblical prescription of the beast. Uh, this is attributed to uh, uh, Jerome. The blasphemous worship demanded by the beast in distinctly reminds one of the imperial cult of the first century. And the war the beast wages on the saints cannot, cannot help but recall the intense persecutions Nero and later uh, Domitian inflicted on Christians because they did not worship Caesar. Uh, Nero's persecution of Christians from November AD 64 when he blamed the Christians for the massive fire that he started to June 68 could account in part for the 42 months, three and a half years of oppression mentioned in Revelation 13.5. The reference in Revelation 13.11.5 to the beast of the land securing worship for the beast from the sea, Rome, uh, was across the sea from the place of the writing of the, apo of the apocalypse, uh, which is in Asia Minor, Rome was directly across the sea, reminds one of the local priests of the empirical cult in Asia Minor, whose task was to compel the people to offer a sacrifice to Caesar and proclaim him Lord. We talk about the beast coming and the Antichrist coming and saying, worship me. They say that Nero was doing this, Megalomaniac that he was, Nero had coins minted in which he was called Almighty God and Savior. Nero's portrayed uh, portrait also appears on coins as the god Apollo was playing a liar. Uh, Lear, whatever the thing is. Uh, while earlier emperors were proclaimed deities upon their deaths, Nero abandoned all reverse, abandons all reverse and demands divine honors while he's still alive. So the other guys are demanding it after their death. He should be uh, called a deity. While he was alive, he wanted it. Those who worshiped the emperor, listen, received a certificate or mark of approval, karagma, the same word used in Revelation 13:16, the fame mark of the beast. 
So we talk about, will you receive the mark? Will you get the chip in your hand to buy and sell? And don't do it. Don't get tattoos and all the stuff that goes on with Revelation. It happened way back when, according to the historians, under Nero. Worship Nero. You get a mark, a karagma, and that will allow you to have uh, exchange with people. We're going to stop here for today. And, and if you don't know it already, try to figure out what the figure of 666, whose name it spells at the end of this chapter. All right, questions, comments that I can't answer. Please bring them up. Over there at the side, Wendy, Vanna, I mean. <coughs> your name I'm Patrick hi Sean hi, thanks Patrick. thanks for your teachings and uh, Thank you for being here, Patrick. oh my pleasure glory be to God um so I have a question it's a little off topic from what you just read but that's okay no I can't get you a date <laughs> okay go ahead Patrick I'm just kidding uh so in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. Okay. Okay, hold on. Gospel. It says, uh, I'll read this verse and then so you know in context. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen... And then I'll get to my question. According as he had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us, that's my question, ha having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. What do you think about predestination? Because I don't believe five-point Calvinism. I think predestination is definite. I think it's biblical. Yeah. And I think that God appointed certain people at certain times to do certain things. He appointed some to be saved here. He appointed some to not. And I think that his predestination before the foundation of the world was a means, as he says in 1 Corinthians, to cause those who haven't been to rethink where they are. He mm -hmm. uses the weak things of the, word to, of the world to confound the wise. So he has done this, but I don't think in the Calvinistic sense he predestined for life and hell and eternal. I just think he has arranged who he is calling and choosing to work about his glorious end, which are works of love, not works of that crazy Calvin idea. Does that help? Yes, it does. Thank, Thank you, Thank you, Patrick, very much for your question. Yes, sir. Up front here, Wendy, Vanna. I'm going to take a zero off your paycheck if you don't speed it up. I need some Heelys. Working hard, working smart. Okay, I have a, it's more of like a fact yeah. to share about Nero. So Nero was so selfish and self-centered, you know, as you mentioned, I didn't know that about the coins that he called himself the Almighty God. Uh-huh. Uh, that's crazy. But uh, he actually made a statue of himself that was about 100 feet tall, and it was called the Colossus of Nero. Oh, yeah. And after he died, Vespasian put uh, sun rays, uh, a crown of rays on his head to kind of make it soul, huh. which was a pagan, you know, just a false pagan god. Wow. You, you said you know his name? Was it Sol Invictus? Something like yeah. that. 
That's actually I actually have an Invictus watch. That's funny you say that. Look or out. Invicta, Invicta. Anyway, um, yeah, that's pretty interesting that he made a statue of himself that sure. big to have people like worship this false god. Yeah. Um, and it got moved to several places by the the succeeding, yeah. the preceding. Isn't that amazing? Emperors, yeah. Thank you for that insight, Brother Jonathan. Passed over to Steve. Yeah. I'm going to spoil it for those that don't know what the number thing, but uh, there's a YouTube channel uh, called Number File, and they do math and stuff. And they Number File. Number File, yeah. YouTube. But, they co but yeah, it's not a anything to do with the Christian channel or anything. It's just like math or for college. But um, they discuss this, too, and kind of shows the silliness of all the people freaking out about that number oh. and stuff. And also, um, did, uh, you mentioned um, Ken Gentry. Yeah. Isn't that, is that guy, isn't that guy a futurist? No. Or is he, oh, he's a preterist? He's a preterist. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Hey, Sean. Dave. <clears throat> In, uh, in Revelation 13 here in verse 16, it talks about um, the mark on the forehead and the hand. And I was just curious if you thought that John's using a literary kind of getting them to think of the Shema, how they would do that because all their deeds or whatever were for God. And he's showing that all the deeds of here are the antithesis of that. Do you think that wow. was in his mind? Seems like if there's a holy uh, trinity, then there would be a holy non-trinity. And if we have those same similarities, I think that's a great insight. Yeah. yeah, with the phylacteries and, and all that stuff. And yeah. this is the antithesis to that. Uh, two more just real quick things. The other thing is um, in First Peter, it talks about um, trials, and he, he kind of uses the term fiery as, as, you know, and do you think he's looking back at the uh, potentially so that they're getting the imagery of the fire that had happened with Rome and Nero? I know some people hold to that view oh, in First I Peter. Oh, I thought of that. To me, I would think that <clears throat> Peter was speaking of, uh, so when would that have been? When did Rome burn? It was under Nero. I don't know the exact date. But I don't either, but yeah. I would have always thought, reading it, that he was speaking of the future fiery trials that was coming upon them, but I don't know. Yeah, and I, I think some people hold to the view that he is speaking of the future, yeah. but he's giving that past backdrop oh. of what they'd been through, saying, hey, we got through that. And the other, just last comment I would say is um, a lot of people, when they study textual criticism and the different variants that are out there, um, it was for a time there was a variant, although it was way back, that had the number as 616 mm. and it was the only one and it was an outlier and now if you go and find the very earliest fragment that we have of this passage it's also 616 but the thing I would just tell everybody here is that you can work it out and mathematically you come up with the same name yeah so yeah I'm really glad you shared that Dave yeah. what he's saying is that where even though our manuscript evidence uh, shows that there are fragments and, and that show 616 instead of 666 if you do the math using the metria that the Hebrews would use, you will come to the same name. So I think that's really fascinating. Thanks so much. Anybody else? Oh, in the back, Wendy, Speedy. Let's <laughs> talking to, oh. Uh, my name's John Steve, but um, the number 666 comes from 1 Kings 10, 14. And it's in reference to all the gold that King Solomon used to receive. But I'm a futurist, <clears throat> and the reason why I am is because I've worked for the Illuminati for 42 years. You know, I get my retirement from them. But uh, 
I just I just read Revelations way different now because it was written as a book. It never had any chapters or verses in it. Yeah. So everything in it, like uh, Ezekiel, they didn't understand him because he was always talking in parables. Mm -hmm. So this whole book is about parables. But the beast that I recognize in it is the Illuminati, is the Federal Reserve, you know, the the world banking system owned by the by the Jews <coughs> and they use that number they love it's it's, represent, it's a representation of gold the love of money <laughs> and they control the world with it <laughs> so anyway that's how I, I understand it thank you brother John Stephen good insights I, I don't know of those things but hey if it adds to our uh, learning and different views let's hear them go brother Jonathan so I just want to ask a question based on what John said. It's very interesting because I also used to be a futurist a couple years back. But ever since I started reading the Bible as a historical view, uh, translated in English from other languages, it started to make more sense. So is it possible that, you know, if there is such a secret group called the Illuminati and, you know, there's websites and stuff and all sorts of people talking about it online, is it possible that they're praying, uh, P-R-E-Y, praying on the hearts and minds of uh, believers today, hoping for this rapture to come, and they're kind of trying to make moves in the world, you know, with rumors of wars and, you know, the threat of nuclear holocaust and things like that to kind of trick people into thinking that we are living in the last days? Hmm. Uh, knowing that nobody's really talking about what we're talking about in this interpretation of, of historical Wow, that's Bible. a fantastic uh, theory. I, you're beyond my pay grade. It's possible, I think, that they're, you know, they're trying to use that to their advantage wow. to keep fear in the hearts and minds of people in the world, sure. especially well, believers, when we should have no fear. No, I don't think so either. Except for fear of the Lord. Amen, brother. And back, why don't we we're just, just we're just going in a circle? In a circle. Yeah, we're this, all right, we got a system going on here. So um, this is just a side note, but I was talking with my buddy about um, you know six hundred sixty and six and what all that means and all that stuff. Um, you know, showing him what that means, and he kind of made an interesting point and said, "Well, that may be what it was from, but it might be just as." terrifying that certain people think it means a certain thing to them it might not make a difference you know wow. based on just how they they see it no matter what it really means you know if it's true or not they see it as a certain thing and that's kind of just as bad if you think about it so know. someone who tattoos 666 on so, the yeah someone who thinks they, they think it's or they darkness. think it's real and they think so, it's this so it's kind of just as bad almost you know so, I don't know it's possible to. You youngsters come up with some yeah. interesting stuff. Now we got Grant at the back. Grant's got something to say. This is, Grant always brings an interesting perspective to it. Let's hear what you say, brother. I love your insights. They always get me in trouble. Grant? Yeah, it's me, all right. <laughs> yeah, think about the times that's going on now. Yeah. Snowing in Atlanta. 
in Texas and all down through there never has been before. Now California's burning up. And all through these uh, things that's been happening that has never happened before. I think, uh, I believe in the rapture. I think it's coming. We don't know when. But, uh, and the dead will rise first. And it's the way it goes. And uh, so it's scary to think about, but uh, I hope I'm living. I'd like to see what happens when I go. That'd be good. <laughs> all right. That's just a thought anyway. Thank you, Grant. You're like my dear sister in the Lord uh, who told me the, she really, the rapture has to happen. She really wants it to happen. So she can be taken up and go to all her oh, neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Grant. Whatever the thoughts. Oh, I got one more. Uh, I shouldn't have said anything. I, <laughs> I also believe that when you, uh, when you die and you're they put your body in the ground that your soul and and your spirit remains with the body oh. and it goes to sleep oh, soul sleep until that happens then then it will come out the dead in christ all all the all of these sailors and guys that were killed during the war and their bones are laying around France or the bottom of the ocean will they'll come out and uh that's the way I look at it anyway. So. Many people believe in soul sleep. There we go. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate it. All right, brother. All right. Have we exhausted ourselves of hypothecations? And I don't blame you, you know, a lot of this stuff. Let's pray. Thanks, you guys, for participating. It engenders thought among our viewers at home and ourselves. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Lord, we, uh, we pause. We thank you. Uh, you. We are to worship you with our, our heart and our might and our mind and, uh, and our soul. And with that mind, you've given us, made in your image. So we've got to think these things through, and we've got to analyze them and, and question. And so we're grateful that you've given us that capacity. And um, we just pray that you'll help us not necessarily become so uh, wrapped up in the facts and figures, but to just realize uh, the place and purpose these things have in our Christian walk has application to who we are as people. Uh, in meat, we sometimes get away from that. We don't have as much talk about you as uh, Lord and King over our lives and all you've done because you loved us so much. And so we just pray that we won't lose that in this group. We'll always cling to the cross and, and to you and what you've done. And so... We pray for that. We pray for those who are on our list. We pray for Nathan Edwards, Patrick's mom and her health, Patrick's brother Paul, that he will come to know uh, Jesus. We pray for Lisa and her battle with uh, uh, cancer. We pray for uh, the people who are on our list. I may have written them here. Uh, I didn't on this one. Hold on. We pray for Taylor Godfrey, and we pray for Celeste Christofferson. And... Um, and anybody else, our sister Diana and her, her issues and health issues, and all of us. Uh, read our hearts. Read our minds. You know what we need. So we offer up a collective prayer to ask you to help us with those issues, whatever they might be. Bless our children. Bless those who are wandering and not of the faith or struggling with the world. And bless those who having issues with the other parts of life, mental illness and
physical illness and jobs with the temporal world and making ends meet. We pray for our families, our loved ones, that especially during when we get together during these holidays, that we will be able to shine that light, a light of love, not of superiority, not of an ability to combat people with facts and figures, but with the love of Christ. Fill us with that love. Help us to exit here to be better Christians, not to be known for our, our wisdom, but for our foolishness, which is found in you, that you'll use us as the broken, weak, debased things, as you say, of the world to confound the wise. And we'll do it through the humility you bestow upon us, knowing that you've reached down and touched us, chosen us from the foundation of the world to be redeemed, to be used by you. So fill us with this, Lord, as we exit here. Help us break down walls of denominationalism. Help us to make friends, Christian friends, with all the people around us so we can bridge gaps and, and have union and, and uh, koinonia with all those who seek you, Lord. So we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.